I have with me a guest today that wears two very uh, distinctive hats um, that, that are co-related, and we're going to talk about them. Um, but he's the CEO of a well-known company in American law enforcement, but he's also a podcaster. But more than that, he's a storyteller, and he is a guy who wants to make sure that we don't forget our history in the law enforcement profession. John Becker, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Betsy. Appreciate you inviting me. So first, let's talk about Aardvark Tactical, which I just love the name. Um, how did you get involved in, in this company and what do you do for American law enforcement? So I founded Aardvark when I was 17 years old. Uh, I, my first year of college, uh, doing rock climbing equipment. And I you know, sold ropes and harnesses and those kinds of things. And I felt like I needed to know more about the equipment than my end user did because I didn't want to be a sales guy. And so I learned a lot about the product. And I started to deal with SWAT teams and military special operations groups quite a bit who were buying repelling gear from me. And that turned into, you know, hey, can you get us this? Can you get us that? And um, I was lucky enough to hook into the guys who were the founders of, of modern tactical science. Um, it's just, just by dumb luck. You know, I always say my story is kind of tactical force gump. Uh, I, I've been in the right place at the right time a number of times. And uh, so I was fortunate enough to early in my career meet many of the guys who were responsible for the, the growth of special tactics in the United States and the initial training and those kinds of things. And, um, you know, that was that was ultimately what gave rise to the business. And now it's a large military and law enforcement distributor and manufacturer and integrator. Now, you know more about um, special weapons and tactics, what we call SWAT, than than really than a lot of cops do. So I want you uh, one of the things I want you to do is explain to people why would a SWAT team um, need ropes and climbing equipment? And I say this as the wife of a guy who went to LA SWAT school. And one of the pictures we have framed is him climbing down this, rappelling down this tall building. Talk about the need for that and, and the equipment necessary. So I think originally the idea behind it was kind of a military idea of you know, morale building and confidence building. But in modern special tactics, uh, ropes have a, purpose, a number of purposes. One being access to access difficult locations. Uh, you, this weekend, you saw New York Fire rescue somebody with, with ropes work that would have otherwise died for sure. But, you know, you think about law enforcement finds themselves in difficult situations where people are injured at elevation, they need to access high locations, they need to be able to climb. Uh, units like LAPD, LA Sheriff, New York ESU are dealing with people who might climb a bridge and say they're going to kill themselves. So there's still a big place for, for rope work in law enforcement. And, uh, and that was the genesis of the business. And obviously the business grew way out of that as it grew, but it was a very good, uh, a very good anchor for, for the business when it first started. What are some of the things that Aardvark offers besides the ropes and that kind of equipment? So my job is to protect tactical operators. And, and it's probably easiest to describe it by who my client is. Um, my client ranges from small domestic SWAT team to larger counterterrorism team. So, you know, small domestic SWAT team, Laverne Police Department, you know, Tempe, uh, Phoenix, up to LAPD, the FBI hostage rescue team, uh, most of the federal agencies. 
And then we also deal with a lot of uh, special operations units, uh, military special operations units. And then we do a bigger integration business with the Department of Defense that is, you know, hardening foreign operating bases and protective equipment. We do all the riot gear. We've done all the riot gear for the National Guard for 20 years. So it's kind of a broad swath, but the easiest way to describe it is my guy is, is in a tactical situation most of his day. Right, right. So what, well, first of all, I have to ask, why Aardvark? So, you know, when I started the business, I had people suggest names and I, I wanted something that was kind of nondescript that didn't really, you know, completely tell you what the business did. And one of my friends jokingly said, call it Aardvark. It'll be the first listing in any phone book. And a couple of weeks later, Aardvark was what I remembered. And as we moved more into larger government contracting and, and more into tactical stuff, everything is named, you know, Falcon and Tiger. And you know, it's all these aggressive raptors and large cats. And there was something kind of ironic and funny about Aardvark. Uh, and now, you know, 35 years later, 37 years later, it's, it's stuck. And, and the one thing we did realize kind of by accident was once you knew Aardvark, you weren't going to forget it. That is so true. I mean, I knew, you know, I knew the name instantly when your team reached out to me. You know, I have seen, you know, the the t-shirts and I've seen your booths at the trade shows and, and things like that. You know, you are a really well-known entity in the tactical world. Um, now, because you've been in this for nearly 40 years, you have gotten to know um, really some of the founders, the fathers, if you will, of modern law enforcement tactics. Um, and through that, you have learned that police officer mental health is, uh, is a big concern for this profession, isn't it? No, it's, it's, a, it's a giant problem. And I, you know, I think that we, we tend to put the difficulty of these situations in a box because we don't really want to look at it. And in the process, we forget that, you know, modern law enforcement are exposed to terrible conditions. Uh, you know, they, they see and hear and, and experience things that human beings are not really designed to go through on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's very easy for us to pretend it doesn't exist. But when you look at the suicide rate among law enforcement and among our military and among our first responders, and you look at the divorce rates and you look at the, the alcoholism rates and, you know, we, we are mistreating the people who protect us. And it's, it's a point of frustration for me. You know, I just uh, recently interviewed one of the guys from Paris BRI, who were the unit that responded to the Bataclan uh, hostage situation. And, you know, I asked him, what, what are your memories from the event? And I asked all of my guests, like, what's the most profound memory of your career? And he articulated the story of walking through Bataclan after the hostage rescue was over. And, you know, there's 80 people that have, have lost their lives. And, and he said, everybody's cell phones were ringing. And he said, you know, you're looking at these bodies and knowing like somebody loves them. Somebody's trying to get a hold of them. And, and it's, it's about to have a horrible experience. And he said, that's the thing. He said, this, you know, this, the smell and the, you know, the sounds and all that stuck with him. He said, but the, the, all of the cell phones and all the ringtones and seeing people's phones light up on them haunts him to this day. And, and I, I think we underestimate uh, the damage that is inflicted by these kinds of events. 
Right. And that's the thing is, is we don't, we, I think the American public don't really understand the impact that the, the, you know, of course we all think about the initial impact, but the aftermath of those types of situations, we see it in the news, read about it in the paper, whatever. And then we go about our daily business. Whereas the, the first responders, the tactical operators that, that you interview, um, they are a part of that situation for days, weeks, and very often for the rest of their lives, aren't they? No, it, it's, I'll tell you, so a couple of people that I've interviewed, uh, you know, one of them, Ron McCarthy, who was one of the early members of LAPD SWAT and NTOA, and I mean, Ron is a legend. And I asked Ron that question, you know, what's the most profound memory of your career? And instantly his eyes flooded with tears. They said, watching my first partner be murdered. Mm. And I mean, that's 65 years ago. Right. Right. Like, you know, these guys are articulating stories that happened in 20, 30, 40 years ago. And you can see the pain. You can see them, you know, as they're relating the story, you can see them reliving it. And right. I, I don't think we take it seriously enough. And, and I think part of it's because we don't want to. Right. right. It's complicated. It's difficult. It's 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 easier to just pretend it doesn't happen. But when we look at what's currently happening, especially with our nation's elite operators, whether it's, you know, SEALs and Delta guys or it's it's longtime SWAT guys like the the suicide rates are are ridiculous. I mean, it's it's we have got to do something and, and we're failing them as a country. We're failing the people that have taken care for us and have, have put themselves in harm's way on our behalf. Right. So what? Okay. So first of all, I've got to, because you talk about these interviews, um, you started to gather so much information from these operators that you were talking to and, and working with just on the equipment side that you decided to start telling their stories, didn't you? Yeah. So, so to the background story, you know, for, for years, I've been, I, I've had a, a front row seat to history being made to watching, you know, uh, unbelievable events and amazing acts of heroism and, um, you know, watching the, the founders of, of these things create, literally create out of thin air tactics to respond to dangerous situations and live through all of these amazing events. And there's, you know, I, I, I am a student of history. I, I like history. I'm, I'm interested in where it came from. And I, you can't find anything. Right. There is no there is no retelling. It's it's folklore at this point. And I've always thought that was kind of stupid. And, you know, I had conversations with people about, like, why hasn't somebody made this and why hasn't somebody done this? And then a few couple of years ago, one of our friends, uh, Tim Anderson, who was a LAPD sergeant and a Marine colonel, uh, amazing, you know, had a, an understanding and a fusion of, of law enforcement and military that, that few will ever have. Tim got ALS. And I remember standing at Tim's funeral and having a conversation with several of our friends and saying, do you realize how much we lost today? Do you realize how many people will never learn from Tim that could have? And for me, it was kind of a catalytic event where it was like somebody has to do something. The, the problem is that law enforcement can't talk to the media. It's not safe, right? It, it's There is not a you know, generally speaking, there is not an upside for law enforcement in talking to the media, but there's a ton of downside because they're not looking for stories of heroes. They're not looking for operations that went correct. They're looking for 
somebody to say something stupid, somebody to do something stupid. And then that is going to be what law enforcement is beaten with for the next three years, right? You can look at Rodney King or Breonna Taylor, and although those are terrible events, they're not representative of the entire environment. The problem is that law enforcement doesn't have an opportunity to tell those stories because they can't safely talk to somebody. And ultimately what compelled me to do it was a conversation with a friend who runs one of the largest SWAT teams in the United States. And he said, look, here's the problem. Nobody else can do this because we won't talk to anybody else. So if you want to do this, you're going to have to do it because we know we can trust you. And we know that, you know, you're not going to use this footage against us. And so it's given us a platform to have very honest, open, candid discussions without a fear of, of saying the wrong thing, because in the end, it's, it's our footage and we can delete it. Who, uh, who was your first guest? So my first guest was Sid Hale. And Sid was, when I started Aardvark, I mean, I met Sid 35 years ago. So a couple of years after I started Aardvark, at that point, he was a sergeant at LA Sheriff SWAT, um, the Special Enforcement Bureau, SED. And Sid was one of the first guys that took me under his wing and trained me. And, you know, Sid would invite me, hey, we're doing this class. Do you want to come down? Yeah. Hey, we're going to go do a warrant. You want to go with us? Yeah. And so uh, Sid had a profound impact on my career and a profound impact on me as a man. And Sid was one of the people that I was talking to at Tim's funeral. So it made sense that Sid would be the first interview because he was he, he had a massive effect on my career. And Aardvark would not be Aardvark without Sid Hale. No doubt in my mind. My life is different. My business is different. So he was going to be the first, you know, thing. And and he had just had surgery. And I said, you know, we don't have to do it. We, we had the studio set up to do the interviews. And he said, no, let's do it now. Little did I know, six weeks later, Sid died. Kind of unexpectedly. Right. So, you know, in a, in a great moment of irony, the guy who encouraged me to do it, to capture the stories, ended up being the first story that we captured and would have lost. What has surprised you most when talking to these, these heroes? I think, I think what is, is most surprising to me is how emotional the interviews have been. Um, I didn't, although I had deep conversations with, with a lot of these guys, I didn't expect that to come out. I didn't expect these guys to, to be emotional and, and tear up and, and relate painful things. And they've been much more open than I expected. Um, another thing that has really surprised me is the reaction of people who I consider kind of anti-law enforcement. Um, you know, my friends who were, you know, maybe not pro-law enforcement, maybe not completely anti-cop, but not clearly not on, on law enforcement side. Critical, I guess would be a good word. Um, I've had several conversations since we launched the show where, where people have said, God, I had no idea these guys were this smart. I had no idea these guys were this thoughtful. Um, I, I think there is a perception that the, the average SWAT operators knuckles drag when he walks and you know, he likes to hit things with a club. And generally speaking, in 37 years of doing this, that is, couldn't be farther from the truth. They're frequently the, the deeper thinkers in the department. And especially when you get into really proficient teams, you know, you're talking about guys who have spent their careers in this specialty and, and are very, very professional at what they do. 
Well, and I think that's that's one of those myths out there. And part of it is because of, you know, the the television shows that uh, that, you know, show what a SWAT team does and, and this and that. And uh, and then also, again, just that little snippet of information that people tend to get about, um, a, you know, a, a SWAT operation, about the service of a search warrant, things like that where they just, they don't get enough information. And so just like you said, they think that that these guys are a bunch of, uh, you know, knuckle dragon uh, morons that just put on a bunch of gear and bust in a door willy nilly. And, uh, and, and like you said, not, uh, you know, and I've been on a lot of search warrant services, nothing could be further from the truth. Tell people, you know, um, without telling them everything, how, how much planning goes into your to your average operation. So it's interesting. That's one of the things that we talk about. We talk about in several of the interviews, we talk about selection, we talk about kind of planning and, and you know, I think that's one of the things that surprises people is how detailed everything is. Now, certainly, you know, history is replete with examples where that didn't happen and it didn't go well. The problem is that we only hear about that, right? We hear about man bites dog. We don't hear about the, you know, 999,000 times it goes correct, we hear about the one that goes sideways. Uh, one, one of the more interesting statistics that came out of our early interviews was the, the current, uh, one of two lieutenants that runs LAPD D-Platoon, which is LAPD SWAT, uh, shared with us some statistics that they've measured over the last 13 years. And when LAPD SWAT is activated, it is a, it is a serious operation. They, they don't serve very many search warrants. Uh, everything is pre-vetted. It is, you know, when you push the big red SWAT button, uh, something has really gone wrong in the city of Los Angeles, right? It's a, it's a criminal, a felon with a position of advantage and a weapon that won't surrender. That's what it takes to push that button. So you think about how that down selects the number of cases. And then one of the statistics he shared is that they use force of any type. And I'm talking about a wrist lock in 8% of their cases. They use deadly force in 1.4% of their cases. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have a 98% chance after being a felon with a weapon who has refused to surrender of being negotiated out. And, you know, that's the other things. A lot of these teams don't realize, people don't realize how much these teams put into crisis negotiation and, you yeah. know, how much training? I mean, every LAPD SWAT operator has 40 hours of hostage negotiation training, which is right. ridiculous. Every, everybody is a negotiator. And that's true in almost all of the major metropolitan teams, whether it's New York ESU or LA Sheriff's uh, SEB, like all of these teams have this amazing negotiation component. So most of the time, they are able to talk people into surrendering. How does defunding a police department affect these teams? It's interesting, you know, there, there's been this big push to, to defund law enforcement. And I think what we don't understand when we move to defund law enforcement is what we defund is training. What we defund is, is kind of the, the, you know, the sharpest part of the sword, right? Because police departments have to have patrol units and so, you know, they have to meet their minimum staffing. So what goes away when we pull funding away is high-end training. It's, it's, you know, it's things like hostage negotiation training. It's things like, you know, 
um, movement and you know it's it's funding for the for the SWAT team, which in my opinion just increases the likelihood of a bad outcome, because law enforcement doesn't have the option of walking away, right? So so it's it's very easy to say, well, you know, let's just let's just get rid of the SWAT team. Okay, well then that means that somebody that doesn't have that training is going to be dealing with that tactical situation. Well, and, and that's what we see, I know, with because you deal with some really small SWAT teams as well, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and when you're a smaller agency with a smaller team, it might be a regional team. This isn't going to be a full-time team. And, uh, and like you said, you know, training is tantamount because someone is going to have to serve that warrant. Someone is going to have to deal with that hostage barricade situation. And if they don't have the training, it is very likely to go to go bad. John, where can people find out more about um, Aardvark? And then where can they find more about the podcast? How can they listen? How can they share it? So Aardvark is easy. It's just aardvarktactical.com. Um, two A's in Aardvark. And um, the podcast is the debrief.live. And you can go to the website and see lists of the episodes. It's available in virtually all the platforms that people consume podcasts from, whether it's YouTube or Spotify. The, the first season was all shot in video. So it's shot in, in you know, high definition uh, in a studio. And so, you know, I would suggest watching it on YouTube. Um, if, if you have the time, but we're finding most of our users actually are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify uh, frequently while they're working, which is, is great. Absolutely. John Becker, thanks so much for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.